The Teach Middle East podcast is brought to you by Schoolfinder.ae. Schoolfinder.ae is a comprehensive schools directory serving the United Arab Emirates. Is your school a member? Go to Schoolfinder.ae to find out more. Now, enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teach Middle East podcast. I am, of course, Lisa Grace. And with me today, I do have Dr. Jill Berry. And obviously, from Twitter stalking her to LinkedIn stalking her, I finally got a chance to speak with her on a very important topic, one that's very important to me, and that is moving from deputy to headship. You are listening to the Teach Middle East podcast. Connecting, developing, and empowering educators. Now, I have to confess, after being a deputy head, I did step down because I wasn't prepared to make that massive career leap into becoming a head teacher. It's not something that resonated with me, so I stepped away. But I'm sure for a lot of people who are listening to this podcast today, they are ready to take that step into headship. And I think Dr. Jill is just a person to get us all ready to make that, well, not us, get you all ready to make that step. Welcome, Dr. Jill. Thank you very much, Lisa. And never say never. That's all I'm going to say to you. Never. (laughs) Just to kick off, can I ask you to just do a brief intro of yourself, please? Absolutely. Thanks. Um, So, yeah, I'm Jill Berry. I started teaching a long time ago now. I started teaching in 1980. And over the next 30 years, I worked in six different schools in the UK. Haven't worked in the international context, but worked six different schools in the UK. And they were quite different schools. So I taught in state and independent schools, selective, comprehensive, single sex, co-ed. I was deputy of a four to 18 school. And I was head of a seven to 18 school. So I've really enjoyed working in schools with children of all ages. But actually, I started life as a secondary school English teacher. So I started teaching English in a co-ed comprehensive in the Northwest. And I taught throughout my career. So I was head of department for a while. English was my subject. I was head of sixth form. I was deputy head. And then I was a head for the last 10 years. And I taught all through my headship and loved teaching but I think I probably love leadership even more. And I know we're going to go on to talk about that. But when I became a head, I talked to the governors about how long I might be there for. It was one of the questions they asked me interview. And I said, I thought 10 years was probably a good block of time to be a head in one school. And it came to be the right answer for me. I enjoyed it. I loved it to the end of year 10, but I didn't necessarily want to be a head in the same school for 15, 20, 25 years. And I didn't want a second headship either. I felt I'd been there, done that, enjoyed it, but I wanted to do something different. So when I stepped down from headship in 2010, I kind of professionally reinvented myself, really, I think. I did a doctorate researching the transition to headship. I wrote a book about that, Making the Leap, Moving from Deputy to Head. And I've done a lot of consultancy work that's all to do with leadership development. So helping aspiring and serving leaders at all levels, either in their current roles or helping them prepare for future roles. I talk about education. I write quite a lot about education and I do different sorts of 
of training, sometimes in schools, sometimes for organisations. We run a four-week online course, which is specifically about leading an independent school. I really enjoy doing that. And in the pandemic, I've done lots of training on Zoom, which actually I think has worked incredibly well. So I have a very interesting life. I have a better balance in my life now than perhaps I have had at some time in the past. And we're going to talk about that too, I think. Yeah. Um, but that's where I am now. And life is good, Lisa. Perhaps. Brilliant. Brilliant. I'm happy to hear it. I tell you one thing that you said that really resonated with me. You said you love teaching. And so do I. Like I am absolutely super passionate about teaching and about education. And I wonder often, do good teachers make good leaders? I would say that they can do. They often do. But it doesn't always necessarily correlate. There are Mm. some people who are very motivated to remain in the classroom, often very much driven by love for their subject, their enthusiasm for their subject. And clearly, as you move into leadership, you do perhaps a little less teaching. As head of department or subject coordinator in a primary setting, your subject is still very much the focus of your professional life, although you're starting then to get the best from your colleagues too, working through the adults to reach more children. But certainly if you move into senior leadership and headship, it's about all the subjects, it's about all aspects of school operations. So perhaps one of the things that motivated you to come into the profession in the beginning about transmitting your love of your subject is only part of the picture. But what I would say to people is you need to think about what it is that really lights your fire, what gives you the greatest satisfaction and reward. And if it is your subject, then it may be that your career takes a different path. Or if you enjoy getting the best from the pupils, but the idea of trying to get the best from adults, which is a slightly different challenge, slightly more nuanced challenge, doesn't really appeal, then that's fine. It it wouldn't do for us all to want the same things. So I loved leadership and I loved headship particularly. It was the most joyful job I did. I loved the challenge of building those relationships. So with students, with support staff, with teaching staff, with leaders at different levels, with parents, with governors, with the wider community, I enjoyed all that. But some people who were very good teachers that isn't necessarily what they want to be spending their time on. And I would say that, for example, if you're a head of department, you need to be a good, credible teacher. I don't think it's easy to be a leader if you aren't seen as a good teacher. But I would say you don't necessarily need to be the best teacher in the team you're leading because it isn't about being the most outstanding teacher anymore. It's about how you can support and challenge the people you lead to be the best teacher they can possibly be. So it's a slight shift of emphasis. And obviously it, it doesn't necessarily suit everyone, but it suited me. I mean, it sounds like it suited you. And in the international context, I've seen several really great teachers who have exited the classroom, gone into leadership and just become absolutely miserable people. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's because they're bad at leadership, but I do think it's because they've stepped out of what gave them the most joy, like you mentioned. But there's such a stigma, though, that if they did step out of the classroom and stepped into leadership, that it's hard for them to step back. What causes that when they become leaders? Why is it so hard for them to say, you know what, I hate this. Let me go back to being a teacher. 
I think it's because you would feel that in some ways you'd failed and no one wants to fail. I think pride can kick in, professional pride. I want to show that I can do this. Sometimes you perhaps feel frustrated that you made the wrong decision. But I mean, I've known a number of people in my career who have made some misstep in their career at some stage. They've gone for something that they thought was the right thing. They thought that there was an alignment between what they wanted and what they could do and what the job would offer. And they've discovered that not to be the case. And I've done some work with some people in that position. And I've said it isn't that uncommon. I think the important thing is to recognise, actually, this isn't making me happy. And work is too big a part of your life, Lisa, not to be satisfied. We're not happy every minute of every day. I'm, I'm not unrealistic. But if your job doesn't give you a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction, then I think you need to recalibrate and say, I need to look again. So when you apply for a job, I think you need to look very carefully at what the job will involve, the areas of responsibility, and think, I'd love to do that. I'd really like to get my teeth into that. I'm not sure whether I can do that bit yet, but I'm, I'm wanting to give it a go. Don't be pressured to taking a step on the ladder because you feel people expect it of you if actually that isn't what you want to do. Wow, that is such a massive, massive point, because I think a lot of people do take that step on the ladder and it really isn't what they want to do. It is definitely something they're told, wow, you're such a good teacher. Maybe you should become a head of department and then an assistant head and then a deputy head and then a vice principal. And obviously that's not what they really wanted to do at the time. So that like leads to the misery. But I'm listening to you talk and it's so positive, everything you're saying. And I'm going, okay, what am I missing? Because there's a shortage of head teachers. If it was such a glorious step, why is there a shortage, Dr. Jill? You've got to help me out understanding that piece. I think there are a number of reasons why people don't go for headship. And I think some of those reasons are perfectly acceptable and I respect them. So there are people who say, I've looked closely at this. What really appeals to me, it's not what I will find fulfilling. It's not necessarily what I want to do. And actually, I think these days, if you don't want to go into leadership, there are all kinds of things that can give you some professional fulfillment. I think we all need to be stretched and challenged. I don't think many of us could do exactly the same job in the same place in the same way for decades. Most of us would need something to energize and refresh us. But certainly if, for example, your subject is still very much the focus, you know, I know people who go into examining or um, doing more for subject associations or liaising with other subject coordinators in their area across different schools or groups of schools or countries who do research into teaching their subject, who write books about it. Perhaps in the UK, they might join the chartered college and do the chartered teaching status qualification. That There are things you can do that don't just require you to move up the leadership ladder. But I think there are some people who pull back from headship for reasons that I would say I would actually want to challenge because often it's to do with lack of self-belief. I don't think I could do that. I don't think I'm capable of that. Whereas the people around them who know them well say, actually, you do have the potential to do this, but they don't believe it. Sometimes it's because they're scared of taking a risk. No one likes to fail. No one likes to be disappointed. If I apply for jobs and don't get it, how am I going to feel about that? If I get a job and then it doesn't work out well, you know, how will I handle that? So there's that fear of risk and fear of failure or disappointment. 
But the other thing is people's perception of headship. And this is something I feel strongly about, Lisa, that there are people who can only see the challenges and the stress and the anxiety and the pressure. And I think those who are heads, as well as encouraging future generations of head teachers to step up, need to think about how they're modelling headship. Because I did find headship joyful. I found I had greater agency. I had opportunities to do things I'd never been able to do before. As long as you have a good relationship with your governors or your trustees or whatever organisation you're working within, you actually have the capacity to make a difference on a wider scale, unlike any other. You know, you can help to form strategy and vision and direction, working with your senior team and your governors or your trust. And that to me is thrilling. It's a privilege. So I do think sometimes people don't necessarily see headship clearly. So they're making a decision based on a partial understanding of what the job might involve. So one of my missions, I suppose, is to help people to see headship in a more rounded way and then to make a decision and to listen to the people who know them well and know what they might be capable of. So at least it's a well-informed decision rather than a slightly blinkered one. Yeah, I think you've done a great job of that in your book. The fact is, though, that what's being sold is the negative side of headship. And I can only speak from personal experience. When I looked at how head teachers worked, how hard they worked, I definitely did not want that for my life. I, I didn't want to be so stressed and so out of sorts all the time. And that's what I saw from the head teachers that I worked with and from my head teachers at school as well. I didn't see that joy that you spoke about. And so I wonder what can head teachers do to start showing the upsides of headship? Because I think the shortage we see in the UK and in other places for head teachers is coming from that negative perception that a lot of us have of the role. And we need to talk about it. I think we need to talk about the elements of headship that we find rewarding because they're there. I had a, a conversation with a head today who in the UK and she secured her headship not long before the pandemic arrived. So she's had a tough couple of years. But we were talking about the fact that I do know heads, including new heads, who feel actually I'm finding this job very challenging, but actually very fulfilling not in spite of the challenges, but almost because of them. I'm having to step up. I'm having to do things I've never dreamt of doing before. But working with my team, because you're never alone, working with my team, we are achieving things we're proud of. And I think educators have done an amazing job through COVID. And I feel very proud to be part of this profession. So I do think we need to to recognise the bright spots. We need to talk about the bright spots. We need to talk about what's working in our schools and in our roles. When I did my doctorate, I came across something called appreciative inquiry. I don't know whether you're aware of it, Lisa, and whether there's a phrase you know. I, I haven't heard of it. But the idea behind it is that if we have a problem to address, often we can get further if we think about what's working and how can we do more of it? Rather than fixating on what's broken and how can we repair it? And there are always bright spots. You know, there are strong individuals in our schools. There are real areas of skill and talent. And I think making sure that we're fully aware of that and that we give ourselves and others credit for that. And it's not just about headship. It's also about 
building up the teaching profession. There are people who think teaching is too difficult, too stressful. You're always under attack. Actually, those things are true, but I still think teaching is an amazing job. It's fascinating. It's never boring. It does challenge you, but it's so well worthwhile. And I feel that about headship too. Yes, it's not easy. I would never want to mislead people into thinking it's all joy and roses and sunshine because you will have difficult things to do. But again, you're not alone as you do them and the rewards are phenomenal. I like the term appreciative inquiry. I think it's just the same thing as um, sharing good practice. And once you share it and you shine a light on it, then that light becomes brighter because it starts to spread. A bit like the work we do here at Teach Middle East, where we get people to share what they're doing and what's working in the classroom and in the schools. And then other schools are able to read about that. And then they're able to take bits of it, adopt and adapt as they go on in their own practice. So yes, that is definitely something that we should see more of, I think, coming from heads, because like I said to you before, my perception of the role was quite a negative one. I do have a couple of friends now who are kind of changing that somehow, but the the majority is what we see. And I think a lot of it also stems from the fact that it looks as if heads don't have their own well-being at heart. And so if you're taking care of your own well-being and you see a majority of head teachers whose well-being aren't being dealt with properly, you're thinking, well, I don't want to go down that road. Why does it look as if head teachers don't have a really good handle on their own well-being? I think it's true to say that some of them don't, Lisa, but actually we're far more aware now, aren't we? We talk about well-being and balance and workload management much more than we did certainly through most of my career. We're, We're aware of it. There are lots of books and blogs and initiatives about well-being. I would say that as a head, you need to recognise that if you don't look after yourself, if you don't find a sustainable, manageable balance between your personal responsibilities and your professional commitments, A, you won't be the most successful head. So the best heads I know are not the ones who work to the exclusion of all else. You know, and I, I don't know if you've ever read Animal Farm, but there's a character in it called Boxer the Cart Horse, and his attitude to every problem is, I will work harder. Work harder. Mm. He's very loyal but he's not terribly intelligent and he thinks I will work hard and it doesn't work out for him and it won't for us either. So if you don't have some kind of balance, you won't be the most successful professional you can be and you certainly won't be the healthiest and happiest and most fulfilled individual either. So as leaders at any level, it's not just heads, you have to be mindful of your own balance your own well-being Mm. you have to model it that word again people have to see that just because you're ahead that doesn't mean to say that you don't have a life and you neglect your family and your friends and your hobbies and your interests we all need interests that sustain us that refresh and relax and re-energize us we all need that and work is important but this is a job lisa being a teacher being a leader including being ahead is a job it's an important job, but it's a job. It isn't all we are. It's not the mm. sum total of our existence. And the heads who fuse their professional persona with their personal identity, it's a very dangerous thing to do because one day you won't have that job 
And sometimes it can happen earlier than you expect. You know, people do lose their jobs and there has to be a fully functioning person inside when you take the head teacher out of you or whatever it may be. Such an important point. Wow. It is. And there are no easy answers. So I can't say this is how to get the balance right. What I would say is you have to find your own way to get the balance right, but don't give up. And it isn't just leaders. Teachers can be the same. The work is never done. So we can carry on. There's always something more you could do or mark or read or prepare. You need to know what is a reasonable expectation of yourself and when to stop. When actually to carve out time. You're not even thinking about work. You're not checking your emails. I can't bear the fact when people have these emails, work emails, pinging on their mobile phone all the time. Say, no, no, no. You have to have time when you are powering down, when you're actually not responding to a ping. And you have to be able to just take a breath. You'll be better at your job as a result of it. And what you do, I mean, I read a lot. I sing. I've got choir practice tonight. I like sitting in the sun. I go to the gym with my husband every day. I I do a number of different things. It's easy for me. I have more time for that now than I had when I was working. But even when I was working, I was able to compartmentalize. Okay, today is a work day. I'm focused. I've got my work head on. But today is a day where actually I'm going to absorb myself in other things not think about school, certainly not worry about school, because I know that if there's that built into my weekends, some of my evenings, my holidays, part of my holidays, then I'll be healthier. I'm less likely to be off ill. I'm less likely to be really stressed and anxious. I'm going to be a more effective professional. It can be done. People need to see heads do it. They need to hear heads talking about it. And heads need to be talking to other heads about how yes. they manage it. Having a coach can help. Having a coach or a mentor who is separate from your organisation, not one of your governors, not someone you're working with, and you can just talk things through, help get a sense of perspective and proportion. That's what it's all about, I'd say. Yeah. You know, funny you say heads need to talk about it. I speak to a lot of head teachers. We host the Middle East School Leadership Conference every year, apart from last year because of COVID. And it will move this year to February of next year because of COVID as well. And I do talk to a lot of them in my job and my role. I found very few who talk about their well-beings. There's just one person that sticks out to me who is very open and upfront and very vocal, and that's Mark Leppard, and he is the headmaster of the British school Al-Khwairat in Abu Dhabi. He talks very, very strongly about the importance of leaders' well-being. Most other school leaders I speak with talk about work, and they talk about it constantly as if that is all they are and there is nothing else to them. So the danger is that you burn out because actually you can't do that forever. There will come right. a stage where you are so exhausted and so drained. And the other thing is, you know, if you are drained and exhausted, you don't make good decisions. I, mean, I remember knowing sometimes, that, OK, I'm, I'm tired now. I could write this email or finish this document or you know, draft a letter. But actually, if I stop and rest and exercise, go for a walk, sleep and look at it tomorrow, I'll make a better job of it. 
And we want to do a good job. We don't just want to be a hamster in a wheel that just keeps it turning. And as a leader, of course, you have a dual responsibility because you do need to look after yourself. And also you have a responsibility to your friends and your family and all that too. But you also need to oversee other people's well-being. And if you're not talking about well-being, then you're probably not really doing a good job of that too. And you, you will lead some people who are not good at this and you've got to help them. Yes. You've got to make sure that they have a sense of proportion and balance as well. Yeah. So I I think it's really important. And I Uh, don't think it means you're less committed or less effective. It's the opposite, isn't it? Yeah, we know that. And we could talk about this forever and ever. But I really want us to delve into what it takes to take that next step into leadership. So I want us to talk directly to all the aspiring head teachers right now. They're ready in their minds. This is where they want to go. That's the role they want to have. How do they prepare? How does a deputy prepare to be a head? Okay. And the answer is that you do prepare. You do need to prepare. I quite often, I've I've done quite a few pieces of work with governing bodies where I've helped them appoint heads. And I certainly see quite a lot of draft applications for headship. I would expect in the professional development section of of an application form, and just one tip here, rather than trying to include everything you've ever done, which is, you just end up with a long list and some of it's a bit meaningless. I would always say you start that section by saying something like recent, relevant, professional development includes, and then you just put in there the things that are most recent, most relevant to stepping up. If I look at a CPD record and there isn't really anything there that relates to the next step, all the professional development they've done is about doing their current job well. Although that's admirable in a way, it suggests to me that they haven't been looking ahead and thinking and preparing themselves. So you do need to prepare. And there are lots of ways in which you can prepare. So I'd expect them, first of all, to be having plenty of discussions with their own head and hope that their own head is supportive and amenable to helping them start to get their head around this. So encouraging them to discuss things, to think through things. I know really good heads who say, what would you do if you were in my position? And they're not asking for the answer. They're just getting that debate going. You know, what do you think you would do? Mm. Shadowing or observing a head in another school is a really good idea using professional development time for that. I was shadowed quite frequently when I was ahead. It's interesting to be shadowed because it also makes you think about your own job and how you're doing it. It's like being a sort of a helicopter and looking down at yourself and thinking about that. Reading, I mean, there's lots of great stuff about leadership, not just about headship, but um, Steve Mumby's book, The Imperfect Leader, I think is a brilliant book. John Thompson and Johnny Utley's book about putting staff first, I think is a, is a fantastic book for any leaders. And reading educational blogs and, and thinking about leadership, it will help you in your current role as a senior leader, but it will also help you prepare to step up. Obviously, I want everyone to read Making the Leap because it's very specifically about taking that step from deputy to head. And it uses my research participants from my doctorate, six of them, who were all going through the process. So it wasn't just my memory of taking the step 10 years before I wrote it. It was about the data that came from talking to them and also talking to their governors, their senior team, staff, parents, students, their husbands and wives, their partners. So making the leap is is a way of helping people think, do I want this? When might be the right time? What might be the right source of school? 
because that's crucial, finding an alignment between the school you're applying for, what they appear to need and what you think you have to contribute. And it isn't about, you know, there's a list of jobs and I've done them all. You won't have done them all. It's, well, that would be new to me, but this is the skill it requires. I've built that skill in a different way. I've had impact. That gives me confidence that I can step it up a notch. There are courses, obviously. I've been involved in lots of face-to-face preparing for headship courses in state and independent schools. And on the independent side, I do work for HMC and GSA, and that's been online in the last 18 months or so. An interesting HMC, which has lots of international members, we're actually changing the timing of some of our online courses so that we're doing them in the morning, so that international schools will be able to access them if they're in a different time zone. And the online course, which I mentioned, which is a four-week online course about leading an independent school, we've had a lot of international participants because it's asynchronous. So if you're in a different time zone, that isn't a problem. So I I think there are lots of things you can do. Networking, talking to other senior leaders, talking to other heads, face-to-face when you can, online, Twitter for education, blogs, and all their spin-off events. That's a brilliant way to start to prepare. But having said all that, Lisa... One of the phrases that I quote all the time, it's from someone called Robert Quinn. It was a book in 2004, and I read it again when I was doing my doctorate. And he said, in any new leadership role, you have to be prepared to build the bridge as you walk on it. You cannot completely construct that bridge before you take the first step, before you apply. And some people think that that's what they have to do. You will learn to be a leader from being a leader. So you will go into it having thought about it, having done your research, prepared as well as you can, but you will learn from the experience of doing the job. So as a head, I made some mistakes. If I could have my time again, there are some things I'd do differently, but I don't beat myself up about that. That was all part of my growth, my development, my building resilience. So yes, you can prepare and you should prepare, but actually you can't prepare so perfectly that you go into the job and nothing's going to take you by surprise. That's not how it works. There is a really good book, by the way, by Aisha Small. I don't know whether you know Aisha. And it's called The Unexpected Leader. And it deals with the situation where someone finds themselves catapulted into a leadership position that they weren't expecting. And that just happened to people, doesn't it? So you're a deputy and your head's ill and suddenly you're it. Now, I never had that. Every leadership role I got, I I kind of worked for and applied for. And but, but Aisha talked really well about that in The Unexpected Leader. So that's another book that I think I would recommend. And she talks about introvert leaders and how introvert leaders can be brilliant leaders. I mean, she's an excellent leader, but she's quite introvert. And so there are different ways of doing the job and you have to do it in a way that's true to you. And you have to be in a context which you feel is right for you. The ethos, the legacy you step into feels comfortable to you. The the vision and the values of the school will evolve because they do. But you're not moving into a, a context which is completely alien. And I talked in the doctorate and and also in the book about you inherit a lot as a head, but you don't just inherit, you actually start to inhabit it. You make the job your own, you put your stamp on it, you make your mark on the school and the role. And that's so exciting. But you need to be sure that the, the legacy you step into is not one that's completely alien, that there is an alignment so that you think, can I be the head I want to be in this particular school? That is actually 
very, very, very relevant to my next question, because I want to take it really, really practical. I hope you don't mind. If you have secured your headship position. And yes, you've prepared, you've gone through the interviews, you're successful, you've secured your headship. You're in your old school, you're about to go into your new school, maybe there's somebody exiting that role, etc. How do you make that transition smooth? I mean, as practical as you want to be with us, because I'm sure a lot of the people listening are going, or they're probably going to recommend this podcast to people who are about to become heads or aspiring heads. How do they make that transition smooth? You can't make it so smooth that there aren't occasional bumps in the road, because for one thing, that period in between getting a job and starting a job, it's a period of great opportunity. So in the book um, and in my, my thesis, I call it the lead in period. So you've got your job, you're leading into stepping into the job. Most people are doing a demanding job in their current school at the same time. So as they're trying to kind of ready themselves mentally and sometimes practically, they're doing a big job and you're having to balance the two. So it's a bit of a tightrope. And actually your first loyalty should be to your current employer. You know, you can't absent yourself technically or mentally because you're being employed until the end of the holiday when you leave. So you're balancing the two. And I think you need to be quite intentional about how you use that time. I think you need to look ahead. I think you need to plan it out. One of the heads that I I had, one of my participants in my doctorate, together with the the governors, they put together what they called a familiarisation plan. So it covered the period of the lead-in period you know, what he was trying to achieve, what events he would be able to get to, what he was trying to learn, how he was trying to establish himself. Because in the lead-in period, you are learning, you're getting to know a lot of stuff about the context, the particular school, the particular job, but you're also getting to be known. You're starting to establish yourself, to build those relationships, to to win trust, to, to gain the trust of the community you're going to be leading. So I think you need to be quite thoughtful and quite organised about how you do this. So I talk a lot about that in in, in the book. I, I devote a whole chapter to this, to this lead-in period. You're also plugging a few gaps, maybe. The things that you felt less confident about when you went through the application process. Are you comfortable with governance? Have you been fortunate to be in a senior leadership role where you've had lots of interaction with the governors? You understand about the dynamic between the head and the chair of governors? Or do you need to, to do some more reading, more research? You need to talk to people, talk to your head, perhaps talk to your chair of governors, talk to the chair of governors of the school you're moving to about how they see this dynamic working. How confident are you with finance? Do you need to do some reading? Do you need to do a day course? HMC, do managing um, understanding school finances day course. Do you, so you're plugging a few gaps and building your confidence and building your capacity. There will be things you should be reading, people you should be talking to. But again, you're balancing all that against the job that you're doing at the moment. So great opportunities, but also considerable challenges. And again, you're trying to find balance between your personal and professional life. So it's not easy. Lots of people are moving house. They may be moving country, relocating their family. There's a lot to do. So you need to kind of think about how you're going to pace yourself, what your priorities are, avoid conflict where you commit to one thing and then find that it clashes with something that you you need to do in your current school. So be kind of thoughtful and organised about it. But if you do it well, it means that when you step into the role, 
you're already, you, you know quite a lot about the school. They know quite a lot about you. They're starting to, to kind of trust you and respect you and want to work well with you. So it's not like starting from, from ground zero. You've been preparing for that. And actually, you've been preparing for that from the point of the, the application and the research you did prior to your application. It's all part of a continuum. It is about building relationships. Building relationships, establishing the most effective communication is absolutely key. And that's with students and all staff and, and also with parents, with feeder schools, other schools, prospective families who might join you, people across the wider community in which your school sits. So that's a real priority, I would say, for the leading period in the early weeks and months. And you need to listen, ask far more questions than you make statements. And people will try to push you into making statements. You know, what are your priorities? What do you want to achieve? Where do you see the school in five years time? I would say my priority at this moment is to listen and to learn, to tune in to the context, to find where the bright spots are. What's working well? What do we need to do more of? What are you proud of? I am um, in my first term at, at my school when I became a head. I had one to one meetings with every member of the teaching staff and quite a lot of the support staff as well. Certainly all the support staff who had some leadership responsibility. And I asked them to answer two questions. Um, and it was an idea I'd pinched from somebody else. It's just about all my ideas I'd pinched from somewhere or other. One question was, is there one thing about the school that you hope will never change? And the second question is, is there something you hope will change during my tenure as head? And from the answers to those questions, I gathered a huge amount of information. And it made me think, right, what's working well here? What do people appreciate? What are the things that we mustn't jeopardise? Where are the niggles and the frustrations and the opportunities maybe to take a fresh look at that and do it slightly differently? And one member of staff who came in, she was actually a part-time member of the P department. I talk about this in the book, I think. And she said, before I tell you my two things, can I just say, one, I've never had a one-to-one -one conversation with the head before. I've never been asked by the head, what do you think about the school? And she was a parent of a girl there, as well as a member of staff. And two, I've never felt that my opinion was really sought and valued. So never had a one-to-one -one conversation with the head, never been asked for my opinion in a way that made me feel actually someone really wanted to know this. And after she went out, I thought, God, it's taken me a long time to get through these interviews. It was a school of 950 from 7 to 18 it was worth doing for that comment alone because actually the message I was sending is that I want to know about this school and I want to do my best for it. I'm not coming in with all the answers. I'm not the Messiah who's here to save you and I'm here to serve you and I want to know and I want to work with you. And that was a really important beginning. So those are just some of the things I think you need to think about in terms of the lead-in period and making the transition to give yourself the best possible chance, Lisa. But don't feel that you're not going to be facing unexpected challenges because you are. Things will happen and you'll think, whoa, I've never dealt with this before. But if I don't have a clear sense of what we should do, who should I be talking to? Who can help me? And don't feel that you have to solve everything 
you've got people who know the school better than you do. If, if you were an external appointment, you've got lots of people who are very invested in the school and committed to the school. And they're also, the governors are invested in your success. They want you to be brilliant. They've appointed you. They want people to say, gosh, she was a great choice for head. They don't want people saying, oh my goodness, we've made a mistake. So people are on your side and you can make the most of that. Yeah, I think you've said lots and lots of key things in that answer that I'll I'll have to go back and listen to. And I'm sure the audience will have to go back and listen to. But what stood out for me was the fact that you asked what was working and what they'd like to change. And I Mm. think that data is so rich and so powerful because you could come in and change the one thing no one wanted changing and could completely ruin your time as head because everybody will never forget the fact that they liked this one thing that you came and took away the minute you stepped foot in the door. So I'm really going to remember that. Should I ever? No, it won't happen. But but for anybody else who wants to become head, don't forget, get that data. That data will save you, I think, from making a massive mistake. And it will also help you to kind of come in and make a great impact on something that they might need and have needed for a long time. And you could easily, quickly implement just by gathering that data. Absolutely love what you just said. It's always worth looking for the quick wins in any job. You know, I can do this. It's not going to take ages. It's not going to be that complex, but people will see. They will see that there's a change. I've done quite a lot of appraisals and professional reviews of heads and senior leaders over the years. And we would always talk about the quick wins because I've talked to lots of people in the school about the head. If they can see in the weeks following the appraisal that some things are shifting, then they think, you know, what? Hey, I, I talked to the appraiser and she listened and it's gone to the head and something is being done because the things that cause greatest workplace stress, you know, the research suggests I've done quite a bit of reading about this. It's feeling that our workload is out of control. You know, we don't have enough hours in the day to do what we need to do. But it's also feeling that we're powerless, that we don't actually have any influence over our professional context, which is pawns in someone else's chess game. So anything that makes staff recognise that they do have a voice, that it is listened to, it does make a difference. So giving people a choice over the professional development they do, that kind of thing. So people think, actually, I'm going to do that because I care about that and I want to build my confidence in that, rather than all being herded together and having the same professional development, whether you need it or not, which is how we used to use staff days. Gosh, I hated those. Well, when I started teaching, we didn't even have staff days. So staff days themselves were were a bonus. But actually, we use them better now, I think, because there's a bit more flexibility and choice in the system. So if you can give people a sense of their own agency and their own capacity to influence, not only will you build relationships and and establish trust, but you make the school a better place. Because as you say, you're listening and you're acting on what you hear, especially when you hear things that you don't want to hear. (laughs) You ask people something and they tell you something and you think, oh, no, I didn't want them to say that. That's Mm. when you have to listen doubly hard because actually you can't just listen to the stuff that that chimes with your perceptions and ignore the rest. You really have to listen. And when staff get cross about something, again, you really have to listen and build those relationships. Don't dismiss them. Don't just say, oh, they're just negative and cynical. And I mean, there are people who are negative and cynical, but those people can also be right. (laughs) So you do need to listen and act on what you hear. 
That is so true. I actually think that a lot of the people that we think are cynical and hard are literally trying to tell us what our own minds are resisting hearing. And they're just insistent on letting us know. We're trying to ignore it and they're making sure we hear what we need to hear, notwithstanding there are some negative people in the world. Well, there are. And and sometimes I think, Lisa, people who seem negative and resistant, often at some level, you know, they're fearful. Mm. I I think when the head changes, it's quite unsettling to some people. It's also quite energising and quite interesting and exciting, but it can be quite unsettling. And sometimes if people seem not to be willing to consider doing things differently, so they're very much why we can't people (laughs) rather than how can we people, how can we make that work? I think sometimes they're actually anxious and Mm. anxiety and fear can mask itself as aggression or bad temper or anger or whatever. But actually, sometimes they're just scared that they're going to be required to do something that they're not capable of doing. So it comes out as either apathy or resistance. So I think we do need to ask ourselves, what are they scared of and how can I reassure them? How can I help them have faith in their capacity to do more? I mean, this has been really true in COVID. Everybody's had to step up and do more and be more. How can I help them have the self-belief that together we can achieve this rather than just giving up and it's impossible and just getting cross about it Mm. and frustrated and and whatever. This is why I think leadership is so fascinating because it is about tuning into what does this person need from me as their leader in order to be the the best professional they can be. People need different things and tuning into that and what they need can change at different times depending on what's happening in their life. So I, I think to me, leadership is all about psychology it's it's all about reading people understanding people building relationships um, and I love that I still love that and I still do that in my consultancy life yeah um, actually what can I do that might help this person and, and that might make them feel more positive about their capability to deal with whatever it is Yeah, that's brilliant. In this context that we operate within the Middle East, a lot of head teachers, they come in and they have to balance two things. They have to balance the academic side of their job, but they also have to balance the business side because a lot of the schools are money-making ventures from, you know, companies that are profit-driven. Yeah. And that normally contradicts with the education philosophy of many head teachers. How do you suggest, if you can, that they balance the two, especially when they're at odds with some of the business decisions that are being made that may affect the academic side of things? It is a challenge. I understand that. And again, it's that tightrope, isn't it? I would always say that, so I was head of an independent school. So it was a charity. It was an independent schools council school. So we didn't have shareholders. We weren't trying to make profits. Any surplus that we generated, we poured back into the school. So it was about investing in the school. But you had to make the books balance. And I was very proud of the fact that in my 10 years there, we always had a surplus budget. It wasn't a very big surplus, but It it wasn't a deficit budget. We weren't running at a loss. And the way I looked at it was that, okay, we're a school. We're not like a factory churning out a product to make profits for, for shareholders. We're a school. We're a charity as well. But we have to be run in a business like way, because if we're not business like in our processes, not only will we not thrive, we probably won't survive in the current climate because 
you know, economically times were tough. Competition was stepping up. One of our brother schools went co-ed and we were all girls. So the competition was changing. So I think in terms of, of balancing that, you need to make sure that you are giving really good value, that that you will invest, but that whatever you invest in terms of money or time brings you a very good return. You know, what is the most useful thing I can do here that's going to enrich the experience of the children in my school? To me, it's probably not going to be buildings and capital development. It's more likely to be investing in the quality of teaching or the the training of teaching. I mean, all the research is that if you want to make schools stronger, you really need to invest in the staff, in developing the staff recruiting the best staff so it isn't about having a gold-plated sports pavilion even though that might look very flashy it's about relationships it's about strong pastoral provision it's about range of extracurricular opportunities so the students have got lots of chances to experience things and feel good about themselves it's about all that and doing that is good business but it's also good education so it's not one or the other it's finding ways of bringing them together I had a great relationship with my governors most of them weren't educators I had one former head on my governing body who was a fantastic governor and every governing body needs people who know about education and one of the other things I ought to say is that I would say to any aspiring head are you serving on the governing body of another school that's really great preparation for headship. But also you will give a huge amount to that school because you understand education. So governance is really important. And I can remember saying in a meeting once, just stop a minute, you're all suddenly sounding like bank managers at the same time. We need to get this in perspective. Now, what are we trying to do? Why are we trying to do it? How can we best do it? And if we do that and it saves us money, but actually it damages the education provision, we've shot ourselves in the foot. We've got to find a way to do both. So can we actually make changes which are financially wise, but also educationally strong? And just a couple of quick examples. We always had a head of careers who was a teacher. But when they retired, we said, actually, do you need a teacher as head of careers or do you need someone with a slightly different skill set? And the same happened in terms of exams. We had an exams team. Do they all need to be teachers who are also dashing off to teach their lessons as well as juggling the exams? Could we make better use of support staff who have actually better targeted skills? And and actually, that brings the salary bill down a little bit, too. Can we do better and save a bit of money at the same time? That is the real win-win. And I think if you're looking for opportunities to do that, often you can. I had a great business manager in my school. Well, I had two in my school, but the one I appointed in my fifth year, he'd never worked in a school before. And he decided to do a, a master's in education. He said, I need to know more about education because all the decisions I'm making, along with you and the, the governors about finance, have an educational repercussion. And I want to know more about that. So I said, you know, you need to do a little bit of lesson observation so that when somebody comes to you and says, you know, we need more money for this in chemistry, you understand what it's all about. So it is about bringing the two together and trying not to see them in conflict. This is about offering the best possible provision to the young people in our schools. But how we do that will often depend on the income that we have and how we choose to deploy it. But it doesn't have to be a battle and a fight. It it needs to be a synergy, really. And we need to see that we're all working 
on this together. I may be the chief educationalist here, I'm the head teacher, I'm the head of the school, but actually I know I need to work with my business manager, with my chair of finance governors, with the rest of the governors, because we live in the real world. And there is a way of squaring this circle, but there are times when it's quite hard. And there are times when you have to have some tough discussions. I mean, I used to feel energized when I came out of governors meetings, but sometimes they'd ask some really difficult questions. And I used to think that it's my job to give them really good answers. <laughs> and if I can't, then I, I really need to think about that. Because if I can't justify what I believe to them, then perhaps I'm not being sufficiently articulate, persuasive, compelling. Perhaps I haven't got the data that I need or the examples and the references I need. But they weren't my enemy. They were my supporters, but they would challenge me as well as support me. And that was a healthy dynamic that made the school stronger. Did I answer the question? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no, you, you certainly did. You certainly did. It, you did answer it and you gave us a little bit extra. My thing is that with the head teachers who are coming from a state school and then coming into a international private school, sometimes that transition can be a little bit jolting because now they really do have to consider the business, not only from balancing the books perspective, but from a marketing perspective where they've got to be the face and they've got to always be selling. I know that sounds wrong, but it is what it is. They've got to be selling the school wherever they go and in whatever they do. And sometimes that is not very comfortable for educationalists who really are, you know, focused on the academics. It's interesting because the the, the leading an independent school course that we do, sometimes people are in state schools and they are considering, would I like to be a senior leader or head in independent school? And I can remember one woman who was, she was a special needs senior leader as well. And she said at the end of it, this has been really interesting. It's been really useful. I've decided that perhaps the independent sector isn't for me because the marketing stuff didn't really interest me that much. And I said, well, actually, you need to find marketing interesting. I found marketing fascinating, marketing and PR and being the face of the school. I loved that. And you are a salesperson, but I felt I was a salesperson for a product I really believed in. I felt passionate about, I felt proud of. I spent a lot of time because the market in Bedford, which is where my school was, was very tough. I spent a lot of my time with individual families who were looking at the school. So we'd have open days and, you know, lots of people looking around. But we always encouraged people to book an individual tour and a visit. And they would do a tour of the school. um, And then they would spend time with me at the end of the tour. And they could ask me anything. And their child was normally with them. And we talked about whatever. And I thought, I don't mind anything. They can ask me anything. I'm not trying to cover anything up. I'm not trying to think, oh, I hope they don't notice that. Or if the school wasn't right for their child, then that's fine. There's another school out there that might suit them better. But if this school is right for their child, I want them to go away with a very clear sense of what it has to offer and what I have to offer. Because as the head, sometimes you are the school to people. And I did have parents who subsequently said, we chose this school because we bought into what you said and what you stand for. Now, I know that's a bit scary, but again, it's a great privilege. So I enjoyed the marketing. And it's it's one of those things with really clear key performance indicators. You know, how many of the people who look at you register 
how many of those who register that you offer a place to accept the place? If they don't accept the place, are you gathering data from those people to find out why not? Do you know how your admissions funnel is working so that you're not losing people along the way because actually you're just not systematic enough? You're not building the right relationships so that they feel invested in the school before they actually start. And I loved all that, Lisa. So I think if you move from the state to the independent sector, it's one of the things you have to get your head round. But actually, there are so many benefits too. So I only moved into the independent sector as a deputy head, having been in four state schools. And this was all new territory to me. So rather than having a guaranteed cohort of pupils who wanted to come to you every year, you were working hard to secure that cohort. But I loved it. I really enjoyed it. And I found it a very satisfying challenge, especially in the current climate. Although I'm speaking to lots of heads who are saying our numbers are looking quite healthy at the moment because our provision in lockdown was good. So our reputation is actually it's strong. Word is spreading that actually that is a school where they coped well in COVID. So I think any opportunity to show what your school has to offer inside the classroom and beyond it. And I was a head who went to everything. You know, I used to go to things all the time. So I'd go to young enterprise competitions and public speaking competitions. I'd go and watch sports things. I sang in the choir. I'd, I'd go to drama rehearsals and all those opportunities gave me the chance to talk to parents, families, grandparents, potential parents, but I loved it. I didn't feel that was a terrible duty. I thought this is my school and I'm proud of this school and I love to be out there watching the students achieve and experience all kinds of things because this is what the school is and this is what people are buying into if they choose to send their children here. Yeah, I, I think that what you said, that sometimes for the parents, you are the school. As the head, you are the school, and that's why the they would choose to send their child there. Or and not. It, or, or, <laughs> or, or not. Or not. Somebody or said not. Couldn't get you know, <laughs> it can go either way. They could be like, no. Because I remember when I, when I came, I, I was touring schools for my boys when they left preschool. And I, and I know the schools here very well, but some schools I would walk in and I would meet the head and I'd be like, yep, this is not the school. <laughs> Just keep moving. You know, I remember going to one particular school and the head was there and, and I said, can I speak with him? And the, the secretary said, no, he's on a call. And I said, no, it's okay. I understand I've, I've come at an inopportune time, but is there any way I can like wait or come back and and her response to me was no we can have someone else do the school tour with you and I was like yeah but you you want my kids I don't think so <laughs> I really don't I think remember so. seeing these these prospective parents sometimes at the end of our conversation which was as long as it needed to be if I had another appointment or I was teaching a lesson my PA was keeping an eye on things and if it, the, the meeting ran over she would make arrangements and sometimes people said you know we really appreciate your time we're so grateful you're the head and you've given us this time and I was thinking are other heads not doing this what could be more important than building that relationship with this family who may actually have an association with your school for a long time you know this is the eldest of four children and then so I, I just think if heads are too busy similarly with all the extracurricular stuff I used to go to lots of things and I'd look around and think 
can't see any other heads from here. What are they doing that's more important than this? And I also, one of the reasons I taught was to get to know the individual students. And by October half term, I taught all the year seven. I knew the names of all the year seven. After seven years, I knew the names of all the senior school. And sometimes, you know, we're we're just too busy to teach. And I think, well, actually, for me, it isn't about the teaching. It isn't about the amazing quality of my English lessons. It's about building that relationship, getting to know them, getting to know their names, having a relatively warm relaxed relationship with them so when they have to see the head about something they're not scared I've taught them they know me I know them never going to get the child's name wrong so I think as a head you have to think about what your priorities are time is precious you're trying to find balance so what's going to give you the, the greatest return and for me I only taught them one lesson a week and I was paired with their proper English teacher, if you like. So if I had to be out of school, they were taught English. They didn't suffer from being taught by the head. Those one-to-one meetings with with the the staff that I did at the beginning, going to the extracurricular things, being out there, being seen, being a face, being someone that people knew, all those things to me were a really good use of my time. Now, in different contexts, heads may choose different things, and that's fine as long as you realise that the things you're giving your time to are worth doing. Something I started doing a few years in, and again, it was an idea I picked up from someone else. When we had the UCAS references for all the upper six, and we wrote references even if they weren't going to university, although most of them were, I sat down with each individual girl and I read her reference to her, and we had a conversation about it. It was one of the most heartwarming things that I did, and they enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it. And it was part of the joy. And people knew that I was doing this. And I thought, actually, there's something special about sitting down with the head at the end of your time in the school. Some of them had been in the school 11 years if they'd been through from year three. It kind of punctuated that moment as they prepared to leave. So to me, that was a really good use of my time. So I think thinking about what am I going to spend time on? What am I going to invest in? What am I going to prioritise? What will I get from it? What will others get from it? And what message does it send? I think that's really key. Brilliant. It's such a good point to end the podcast on. I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about women in leadership and why so few women are choosing to be leaders. But we might have to do that in a part two But before you go, though, I'd love to maybe just find out from you how people can reach you, if they wanted to learn more, if they wanted to connect with you, what's the best way to to connect with you? Um, So I spend a disproportionate amount of my life on Twitter, Lisa. So I tweet at JillBerry102. I also blog and through the blog, you can send me an email if you want. So the blog is JillBerry102.blog. It's all about education. So people have a look at the blog follow me on Twitter. I do use LinkedIn, although I don't use it as much as I use Twitter. So I'm, I'm not I'm not difficult to find. And Google me. One of the things that I meant to mention when I was talking about the whole appreciative inquiry thing and also having self-belief, I did a TEDx talk in summer of 2019. And it's about 
seeing the best in yourself, seeing the best in yourself and seeing the best in others. So if you Google Jill Berry TEDx, it comes up. It's a, it's a nine minute talk, I think, and it encapsulates a lot of the things I believe. I'd actually love to have a part two conversation with you specifically about women and women ed. Yes. I've been involved in the women ed initiative from the beginning, spoken at lots of events. I wrote a chapter in the first book. There are all kinds of complex reasons why women are underrepresented, I think, in, in leadership. And I'd be very happy to talk about that. I so, think I'll bring you and Hannah. And oh, that would be great. Yes. I'll, yeah. And there are a couple of people. Don't, don't worry. I will. I will make it happen. <laughs> I will make that happen. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, it's been really, really, really good. And I do hope that people will connect with you, learn more about the work that you're doing, your consultancy, grab the book. I'm sure they can grab it on Amazon or wherever it's sold and, you know, get in touch with you via your blog and learn more. Taking that step from deputy to headship, I'm learning through our chat might seem daunting, but very doable if that is in alignment with what you want from your career. I thank you so very much for being my guest, Jill Berry. Thank Thank you, Lisa. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Teach Middle East podcast. Visit our website, teachmiddleeast.com and follow us on social media. The links are in the show notes.